0: The Galileo is to criticize the Greeks. The contrast class of Aristotelian science is constantly evoked to explain Galileo's alleged greatness. That is the case both in Galileo's own works, in fact in his dialogues, as well as in modern scholarship. Uh, Nevertheless, this narrative gets it completely wrong, in my opinion. It's based on a caricature of Greek science that effectively ignores the Greek mathematical tradition. Francis Bacon put it well. His words: When human learning suffered shipwreck with the death of the classical world, the systems of Aristotle and Plato, like planks of lighter and less solid materials, floated on the waves of time and were preserved, while treasure troves of uh, much more mathematically advanced works uh, were uh, lost forever. Aristotelian science is not the pinnacle of Greek scientific thought. Far from it. It was uh, not the best part of Greek science, But it was that part of Greek science that was most accessible and appealing to the generations of mathematically ignorant people who populated the universities of medieval Europe for hundreds of years. And perhaps uh, some generations who still do populate the universities to this day. Mathematicians have always uh, looked at things rather differently. So many great findings of the ancients lie with the roaches and worms, said uh, Fermat, So these works are lost, in other words, these mathematical masterpieces that once existed. That's how Fermat put it, and all of his mathematical colleagues agreed. And they were right. In the 20th century, a few of these kinds of masterpieces were uh, recovered. So these 17th century mathematicians were proven right in their intuition that these great works were forgotten and hidden away among roaches and worms, indeed. For example, in 1906, a work of Archimedes that had been lost since antiquity was miraculously rediscovered in a dusty library in Constantinople. The valuable parchment on which it uh, was written had been scrubbed and reused for some uh, religious text, but uh, in the original you could just about make it out uh, underneath the new text. And uh, but as one. Uh, historian put it, uh, our admiration of the genius of the greatest mathematician of antiquity must surely be increased, if that were even possible, by this astounding work, which uh, draws uh, inspiration from the mechanical law of the lever to solve advanced geometrical problems, for example the, uh, if this uh, if you can imagine think about it, you know, this was a, it's a brilliant work by antiquity's greatest geometer And it only survived by the skin of its teeth and dumb luck that it was preserved by this uh, having been converted into a prayer book. Just imagine then how many more works are are lost forever. If even that, the the very pinnacle of the best of the best, just barely scraped by through, uh, through basically accident. So that is to say something. And uh, another uh, example of a similar nature, in the 20th century, again, uh, this is uh, well over 2,000 years uh, past Greek antiquity, when we're still making these kinds of discoveries, you know. Divers in, in, uh, in Greece chanced upon an Asian shipwreck, purely by coincidence, and it turned out to complete, contain a complex uh, machine, the so-called Antikythera Mechanism. So uh, historians were astonished again and spoke in very similar phrases as we heard about Archimedes. Here's what one historian said about this. From all we know of science and technology in the Hellenistic age, we should have felt that such a device could not exist. This singular artifact is now identified as an astronomical or uh, calendrical uh, calculating device involving a very sophisticated arrangement of more than 30 gear wheels. It transcends all all that we have previously known from textual and literary sources and may involve a completely new appraisal of the scientific technology of the Hellenistic period. Exactly. Well, that just confirms it, you know, that uh, uh, precisely what Francis Bacon said in his quote, you know, that when quite literally uh, learning suffered shipwreck, the the best parts sunk and only the lighter planks, uh, this... uh, Uh, The philosophy of Aristotle, which was more agreeable to certain minds, uh, was more prone to survive than these much more sophisticated uh, scientific uh, works that were lost. Here's another example. There are various fields of mathematics where, evidently, Greek knowledge was much further ahead than the, the conventional surviving sources would lead us to believe. And one such example is combinatorics. Of this entire field and whole mathematical area of combinatorics, very little survives uh, at all, no complete treatises whatsoever from the Greek times. However, there is a stray remark, almost the only thing we know about Greek combinatorics, is a completely very uh, parenthetical remark in a non-mathematical work by Plutarch. Here's what. Plutarch writes in his uh, it's in the biographical uh, works, he writes uh, uh, that uh, Chrysippus says that the number of intertwinings obtainable from ten simple statements is over one million. Hipparchus contradicted him, showing, that, showing affirmatively that there are 103,049 intertwinings. So, uh, as one modern historian has observed, this passage stumped commentators until 1994, when a mathematician realized that actually in this very specific number, 103,049, corresponds to the correct solution of a complex combinatorial problem that was worked out in modern Europe in in 1870, which was sophisticated, leading mathematics at that time. So this forces a re-evaluation of our notions of what was known about combinatorics in antiquity, just as the historian says. So it's undeniable indeed from this evidence that this entire field of mathematics must have reached an advanced stage, And yet not one single treatise survives on this subject. Uh, You know, this number, 103,049, you you cannot arrive at that purely by chance. It does correspond to a very well-defined combinatorial problem that makes a lot of sense from the point of view of modern combinatories. And, you know, obviously people uh, like Hipparchus must have reached that level which means to, to say, if you reach that level, then you have also done a hundred things that are much easier than that. This is a, this is like a, you know a top uh, top quality uh, combinatorics going on here. However, all of that stuff is lost. All the uh, including even the beginnings of that subject are are lost, which they must have been must have been considered child's play. Seeing as how they were solving these levels of problems of this level of complexity, they must have considered those. Uh, the basic combinatorics to be uh, very elementary. Nevertheless, nothing survives. So uh, these things that I mentioned, those are three examples then. The lost treated by Archimedes, the Articuteria mechanism the, sitting at the bottom of the sea for 2,000 years, and this uh, a cryptic reference in Plutarch that turned out to only make sense to modern mathematicians and nobody had understood what on earth that number was supposed to mean until a modern mathematician got their hands on it. These three examples are just a few such, you could give more along these lines, you know. They are striking examples that illustrate the indisputable point, which is that the Hellenistic Age, the uh, Greek antiquity at its peak, was extremely uh, sophisticated mathematically, scientifically, and we don't know, you know, even the half of it. We know only the tip of the iceberg. Scores and scores of key treatises are lost. We are forced to rely on later uh, commentators of compilers for accounts of the works of the Hellenistic authors. You know, think of it this way. It's like trying to understand modern science and mathematics from popularizations in the Sunday newspaper. Those accounts are vastly oversimplified, uh, dumbed down for a broad audience, for an ignorant audience. These kinds of accounts, the Sunday newspaper, reduces complex science to one or two simplistic ideas while conveying nothing whatsoever of the often massive technical groundwork on which those things are based. That's the state of our knowledge for much of Greek science. All that has come down to us is these sort of uh, clickbait headlines, the blurbs, as it were, but from people who themselves are not scientists and wouldn't understand the first thing about the technical details of these works that they're trying to summarize. If anything, this analogy is actually uh, uh, too generous, too optimistic. The situation is, in fact, even worse. Uh, And that's not my opinion only, but the opinion of uh, many leading scholars on this matter. Here, for example, let me read a long quote from one historian expressing a lament on this issue. Quote, "nearly all that we know on observations and experiment among the greeks comes from compilations and manuals composed centuries later by men who were not themselves interested in science and for readers who were even less so even worse these works were to a great extent inspired by the desire to discredit science by emphasizing the way in which men of science contradicted each other and the paradoxical character of the conclusions at which they arrived this being the object it was obviously useless and even out of place" to say much about the methods employed in arriving at the conclusions. It suited Epicurean, skeptic and also Christian writers to represent the conclusions of scientists as arbitrary dogmas. We can get a slight idea of the situation by imagining some centuries hence contemporary science as represented by elementary manuals, uh, second and third hand compilations drawn up in a spirit hostile to science and scientific methods such being the nature of the evidence with which we have to deal, it is obvious that all the actual examples of the use of sound scientific methods that we can discover will carry much more weight than it otherwise would be the case. If we can point to indubitable examples of the use of experiment and observation, we are justified in supposing that there were others of which we know nothing, because it did not happen to interest the compilers on whom we are dependent. As a matter of fact, there are a fair number of such examples. So that's the end of this quote. So indeed in previous episodes we have discussed the many ways in which Greek sources already showed full awareness of many things often attributed to Galileo, matters of scientific method and so on. So if in addition to this we take this context into account, the context of the filtering, uh, the, the lost sources, that means that we should give all the more weight to those arguments that, uh, that we have discussed previously. Sadly, However, the lack of appreciation for science among ignorant commentators continues among scholars today. I collected uh, some quotes on this by some very respectable uh, classicists of today. Here are some uh, uh, quite strong words from these uh, mainstream uh, historians. Uh, Here's the first one. The state of editions and translations of ancient scientific works as a whole remains scandalous by comparison with the torrent of modern works on anything unscientific, such as about 100 papers per year on Homer, for example. An embarrassingly large number of classicists are ignorant of Greek scientific works. So people who study the ancient world are don't uh, pay any attention to, uh, to science, in other words, and that is what is lamented in this quote. And so... Uh, Here's another quote that, that expresses the same regret. Classicists include many who have chosen Latin and Greek precisely to escape from science at the very early stage of specialization that our school's curricula permit. And often it is a very successful escape to judge from the depth of ignorance of science, both ancient and modern, that it often secures. So that's uh, a quite strongly... Put, isn't it uh, the first quote uh, for example is from uh, Lloyd the Cambridge professor you know it takes a lot for people like that to uh, almost uh, condemn their colleagues to their face. They wouldn't do that if they didn't mean business you know this is uh, if, if you know that when, when Cambridge professors address their colleagues in these kinds of terms talking about their ignorance and so on uh, that uh, that doesn't come by lightly. So it's little wonder, really, that uh, Greek science is systematically misunderstood and undervalued and that simplistic ideas of philosophical authors, commentators, are substituted for the real thing, considering this context, that both the sources, uh, lack of sources, the filtering of the sources, as well as the filtering of modern scholars who read those sources, it all conspires to uh, a lack of understanding of the true value of Greek science. So uh, now, let's consider now Galileo's relation to this uh, the preceding philosophical tradition. It has been systematically misunderstood precisely for this reason. How did modern science grow out of mathematical and philosophical tradition? What is its relation to mathematics and uh, philosophy? Uh, The humanistic perspective is that science needed both. It was born through the unification of the technical but insular know-how of the mathematicians on particular technical problems with the conceptual depth, the holistic vision of the philosophers. However, the mathematical perspective is that science is what mathematicians were doing all along. Science did not need philosophy to be its eye-opener or its better half. Rather, it merely needed philosophy to step out of the way and let the mathematicians do their thing. So which of these two Interpretations of history is the right one. So many historians have tried to stress commonalities between Galileo and the Aristotelian philosophers who preceded him. That is to say, they argued for a so-called continuity thesis, which says that the so-called scientific revolution was not a radical or revolutionary break with previous thought, but rather a natural uh, continuation of it. Here's what they say. Let me quote some historians who express this idea. Galileo essentially pergrew, pursued a progressive Aristotelianism during the first half of his life. That is to say, during the period of positive growth that laid the foundation for the new sciences. Here's another historian say, arguing similarly. A particular school of Renaissance Aristotelians located at the University of Padua constructed a very sophisticated methodology for experimental science. Galileo knew this school of thought and built upon its results. This goes a long way towards explaining the birth of early modern science. Another historian, again, with a similar point of view. The mechanical and physical science of which the present day is so proud comes to us through the uninterrupted sequence of almost imperceptible refinements from the doctrines professed within the schools of the Middle Ages. So there's Athenians again. Or, uh, just one last quote now, saying this, puts it very uh, uh, briefly, Galileo was clearly the heir of the medieval kinematicists. So there you have it, all these people are expressing that idea that uh, it's uh, not a revolution but a continuity. I agree with these authors that indeed those great truths for which Galileo received credit are not his. But... The notion that they were first conceived in Aristotelian uh, schools of philosophy, though, is wrong-headed. The argument of these historians is based on a simple logic. First, they show that various concepts of Galilean science are prefigured in earlier sources. Then, they want to infer from this that these sources mark the true beginning, therefore, of the scientific evolution. But in fact, in order to draw his inference, they need two assumptions. First, that Galileo was the father of modern science. And secondly, that the Greeks were nowhere near the same accomplishments. These two assumptions are taken for granted by these authors as a matter of common knowledge. In reality, both assumptions are dead wrong, in my opinion. And therefore, the inference to the significance of the Aristotelian sources is unwarranted. It's interesting that the continuity thesis, on the one hand, devalues the contribution of Galileo, yet at the same time it desperately needs to reassert the traditional view that Galileo has a clear and undisputed title as the father of modern science, as one of those historians puts it, you know, one of those people who wants to say that actually was there Thelians all along. Those are exactly the kinds of people who need to stress the importance of Galileo. They need to say that kind of thing because this is what gives them the point of connection that they are trying to establish between medieval and modern science. The entire argument stands and falls with this false premise. Therefore, if one proves, as I have done, that Galileo was a mediocre scientist of negligible importance to the mathematically competent people who actually achieved the scientific revolution, then the continuity thesis collapses like a house of cards because you no longer have that link what did the Aristotelians contribute you can find something some kind of link with between their work and Galileo's work but if Galileo is no longer the father of science well then those links are useless they're worthless, it doesn't prove anything about the scientific revolution and also the, let's look at the second uh, assumption, the defenders of the continuity thesis, they, they're equally ineffectual uh, for establishing that, the 2nd false premise of their argument, which is the alleged absence of these new ideas in Greek thought. In fact, even continuity thesis advocates make no secret of the fact that the medieval tradition was built on remnants of Alexandrian science. These are quotes here. For example, although we are left with few monuments from the profound research of the Asians into the laws of equilibrium, those few are worthy of eternal admiration. And, obviously, the masterpieces of Greek science, such as the work of Papus and Archimedes, are proof that the deductive method can be applied with as much rigor to the field of mechanics as to demonstrations of geometry. Those are all quotes from Pierre Duem, a very passionate advocate of the continuity thesis. So how can people like him, then, like Duem? On the one hand, acknowledge that these masterpieces worthy of eternal admiration... Of Greek scientists of Greek antiquity, and yet at the same time maintain that uh, actually the, sci- the, the scientific revolution should be attributed to medieval Renaissance philosophers. Uh, the way they do this is by writing off these ancient works as minor technical footnotes to an otherwise thoroughly Aristotelian uh, paradigm. Only if this picture is accepted can any kind of greatness be ascribed to the pre Galileans. That is evidenced by passages from these authors, uh, such as the following. I'm going to quote them to prove this point. So the point I want to get across with these quotes is the tacit assumption that Aristotelianism is the status quo, so to speak, the default assumption. And that these mathematical things, they were just some obscure you know, uh, details in uh, somewhere in the fringe of intellectual activity. So let's quote this Uh, these authors and see in in what way they rely on that assumption. So here's the first quote. Some philosophers in medieval universities were teaching ideas about motion and mechanics that were totally non aristotelian and were consciously based on criticism of Aristotle's own pronouncements. Admittedly, most of these significant medieval mechanical doctrines were formed within the Aristotelian framework of mechanics, but these medieval doctrines contained within them the seeds of a critical refutation of that mechanics. And here's another uh, quote along similar lines. The medieval mechanics occupied an important middle position between Aristotelian and Newtonian physics. Hence it was an important link in man's effort to represent the laws that concern the bodies at rest and in movement. And another quote along similar line. The impressive set of departures from Aristotelianism achieved by medieval science, nevertheless failed to produce genuine efforts to reconstruct or replace the Aristotelian world picture, yet there were still impressive departures from Aristotle. So you see in all of these quotes the uh, assumption of Aristotelianism as as a status quo. Indeed, if Aristotle is taken as the baseline, then these authors look quite impressive indeed. They do criticize Aristotle, they do show independence of mind relative to Aristotle. But look, what these authors don't ask a more fundamental question. Why should Aristotle be accepted as a default opinion in the first place? Aristotle was one particular philosopher who was a nobody in mathematics. He lived well before the golden age of Greek science, before Archimedes, before Hipparchus, before Euclid, Apollonius, etc., Medieval and Renaissance thinkers indeed mustered up the courage to challenge isolated claims of Aristotle's teachings almost 2,000 years later, while still slavishly retaining his overall outlook. But that does not constitute great open mindedness and progress, as these authors, uh, the, the historians that I quoted, are trying to say. Rather, it is a sign of small mindedness that these people paid so much attention to Aristotle at all to begin with. In my view, it's not so much impressive that they deviated a bit from Aristotle, as it is deplorable that they framed so much of what they did relative to Aristotle, even when they disagreed with him. This is very different from post-Aristotelian thought in Greek times, where there is no evidence that any mathematician paid any attention to Aristotle's uh, mechanics in any case, uh, extravagant claims for the modernity medieval concepts suffer from serious defects. Uh, one historian has, uh, has put it in, in those words, and here's how he summarizes it. There were no such thing as 14th century science of mechanics in the sense of a general theory of locomotion applicable throughout nature and based on a few unified principles. By searching the literature of late medieval physicists for just those ideas and those pieces of uh, quantitative analysis... That turned out three centuries later to be important in seventh century mechanics, one can find those precursors of those ideas. And one can construct a medieval science of mechanics that appears to form a coherent whole and to be built on a foundation replacing those of Aristotle's physics. But this is an illusion, an anachronistic fiction, which we are able to construct only because Galileo and Newton gave us the pattern by which to select the right pieces and put them together. That's how one. Historians puts it, which is also correct and also an yet another reason why the continuity thesis argument uh, fails. The main uh, piece of evidence that is used as this kind of uh, precursorism, so to speak the, the idea that uh, Galilean ideas were already there the main example of that is the so-called mean-speed theorem the mean-speed theorem is a completely trivial result You can visualize it in terms of uh, a graph that has time on the x-axis and velocity on the y-axis. Suppose you plot uh, the graph of a uniformly accelerated motion, for example, a freely falling object. So this graph makes a straight line going from the bottom left to the top right. It starts with no velocity and goes to whatever uh, final velocity, uh, increasing steadily, linearly uh, along the way. Now you can ask the question: How far did the object go? Distance traveled is the area under the graph, the velocity-time, time-velocity graph. So it's the area of a triangle then, because we have the the graph was a straight line. So base times height over two. That is to say, uh, the total time of the motion or the fall times half of the final velocity. Or, or another way of putting it is that. Uh, Half of the final velocity is the same thing as the average velocity. The triangle has the same area as the rectangle with the same base and half the height. Half the velocity, half the final velocity, acting during the same period of time, would produce the same distance traveled. Uh, that's the mean speed theorem. It's simply this: this very elementary concept. In terms of distance covered, a uniformly accelerated motion is equivalent to constant speed motion with the same average speed, namely half of the the terminal's velocity. So that's a very simple thing to see. Some people have praised this as an impressive achievement of the Middle Ages, probably the most outstanding single medieval contribution to the history of physics. This is a quote. It was derived by admirable and ingenious reasoning, according to one historian. Even though these medieval authors did absolutely nothing with this trivial theorem and only deduced it in order to illustrate the notion of uniform change abstractly within Aristotelian philosophy, only later did the theory become central in Galilean mechanics, so-called Galilean mechanics, because free fall is an example of uniformly accelerated motion. But it was in fact never applied to motion in free fall from rest during the 14th or even in the 15th century. And only in the 16th century there is a passing remark to this effect, to the use of uniform motion to represent fall within their Sicilian tradition, to it without any accompanying evidence, very marginal, and that's as late as the mid 16th century, the time of, of Copernicus already. So clearly, the idea these people who were proving the mean speed theorem, they had absolutely no. Uh, Conception that that corresponded to, to freely falling objects. They were merely studying the idea of uniform motion, uniformly accelerated motion, because that makes sense in an Aristotelian fa- framework as just uh, the concept of something changing at a uniform rate. It's not specific to motion. It's not specific. Absolutely not. Nothing to do with falling object. It's just a purely abstract concept that occur in Aristotelian physics in Aristotelian uh, philosophy generally. So it is very anachronistic and very misleading to try to say, oh, you know, they only knew uh, already they were aware of these things that were half of the the discoveries that Galileo was going to make uh, hundreds of years later. So a lot of nonsense. Let's not uh, radically inflate our esteem for the Middle Ages by anachronistically praising them for, for pointing out this trivial result that centuries later took on a significance of which they have no inkling whatsoever we should instead recognize this theorem for the trifle that it truly is. In fact, if we take that sound attitude, then we should also have no need to be surprised when it turns out that actually Babylonian astronomers assumed this theorem, the mean-speed theorem, without fanfare, thousands of years earlier, still earlier than the medieval uh, writers, obviously. This is... Uh, way before even Greek antiquity, the Babylonian astronomy did this. The utterly trivial mean-speed theorem, it was implicitly taken for granted in Babylonian astronomy, as, as recent scholarship has argued. They were too good mathematicians to make a big fuss about this, obviously self-evident, unlike the medieval philosophers, who were terrible mathematicians, and therefore sat around and proved this kind of triviality at length. It's a testament to how bad they were at mathematics. They were so... Ignorant of mathematics that this trivial thing was a cutting edge to them. It only proves how little mathematics they knew, rather than how uh, prescient they were of modern science. Galileo owes other debts to, uh, to previous philosophical tradition as well, according to many historians. For example, we are told that there are unmistakable Jesuit influences in Galileo's work. Quote, above all, Galileo was intent in following out Clavius's program of applying mathematics to the study of nature and to generating a mathematical physics. That's a quote from Wallace, famous historian. This preposterous notion that this was Clavius's program, it it can only enter one's mind if one only reads uh, philosophy. It was obviously Archimedes's program, except unlike Clavius. Archimedes proved his point by actually carrying out this program instead of sermonizing about it, about what one ought to do in in philosophical prose, like mediocre people like Clavius were doing. Philosophers, Asians and modern alike indeed, have a tendency to place disproportionate value on explaining something conceptually as opposed to actually doing it. In fact, uh, isn't that actually virtually the definition of philosophy in the first place? So no wonder... They are deluded in this manner. So therefore the philosophers praise certain Aristotelians for explaining some supposedly profound principles of scientific method even when it is clear that uh, none of them ever actually applied those advocated methods to actual scientific problems. Like for instance Clavius who, who was a nobody gets much too much credit for a uh, merely uh, Advocating this elementary idea that one ought to have a mathematical physics, you know, that was a no brainer for anybody with a, a little uh, background in mathematics. Descartes, a mathematically creative person, he knew better than to fall for this cheap trick. Here's how he put it We ought not to believe an alchemist who boasts that he has a technique of making gold unless he is extremely wealthy. And by the same token, we should not believe the learned writer who promises new sciences unless he demonstrates that he has discovered many things that have been up to now unknown. Quite so. Unfortunately, this basic common sense is often lacking among historians and philosophers when they are assigning credit for basic principles of scientific method. Mediocre philosophical authors are credited with conceptual innovations, even though they themselves did absolutely nothing in science. There is a, a contradiction in the way modern historians try to trace many aspects of the scientific revolution to roots in the Middle Ages. On the one hand, these historians like to claim that the traditional view of the scientific revolution is ahistorical, is based on anachronistic mindset, whereas their own account that sees continuity with the Middle Ages is more sensitive to what people actually thought at the time itself. This is how they like to present themselves. Ironically, However, their view, which is supposed to be more true to the historical actors' way of thinking, is actually or the more blatantly at odds with how virtually all leaders of the scientific revolution thought of the Middle Ages. One historian summarizes it accurately when he writes, The scientific achievement of the Middle Ages was held in unanimous contempt from Galileo's time onward by those who adhere to the new science. Leibniz's skating verdict, barbaric physics neatly encapsulate the reigning sentiment. It's not for nothing. Leibniz, a very erudite scholar, well-versed in the philosophy of the schools, widely read. Nevertheless, Leibniz was also an excellent mathematician, and this is what enabled him to pass a sound judgment on the barbaric science of the Middle Ages. Thank you.